Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Uh, the title of my message is Brace Yourself. Brace Yourself. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I remember one of the, uh, the first times my, my parents let me go over to a friend's house to spend the night. It was like a super big deal in my family. And, uh, you know, I was 17. And no, I'm just kidding. I was very young. I was probably like, uh, like maybe seven years old or so, and uh, it was a huge deal, and it was awesome. And so I went over, they picked me up from school, went over to their house, and uh, they had made dinner, and they sort of laid out the whole spread, and there were glasses on the table, but with nothing in it. And so I'm just like, man, um, uh, when are they going to, are we supposed to get our own drinks? How's this going to work? And so we sat down, and then right before the dinner, we prayed, and then right before uh, they served the dinner, they went and got the beverage of choice for their family for dinner out of the fridge, they grabbed a giant gallon of milk and started pouring milk in everyone's cups. And I instantly was like, I don't even know if these people are Christians. I don't know what's happening here. What is, it's evil. It's pure evil. I had never seen anyone drink milk uh, outside of like a breakfast setting, right? Outside of like a cereal situation. This was completely foreign to me. And, uh, and I was like, this is probably what my parents have been trying to protect me from. Um, how weird other people are when you get outside of the bubble of your house and you go and you start like doing life with other people. Uh, you find out that some of those people drink milk for dinner. Um, and of course we all know those people are psychopaths. And so like I, I feared for my life. I was afraid. I didn't know what was going on. And I was just like, is this, is there other, other options? Because I can't really drink milk. Uh, it brings up like a gag reflex in me. And I'm just like, I can't do this. I thought, and so they're like, well, what do you normally drink for, for dinner? And we were, I was like, water, you know, uh, Diet Coke. And they're like, your parents give a seven-year-old Diet Coke for dinner? And I was like, yeah, because we're normal. <laughs> and you people are weird with your milk drinks at night. It's bizarre, okay? This is for babies, okay? It's, it's, it's for, you know, it, it's like a little bit of dusting for, for cereal. It's for baking, okay? It is not for dinner, okay? You can't have milk with spaghetti. It's weird. And now I feel uncomfortable. And um, I, I'm, I'm guessing that you have had sort of a moment like this before where you were interacting with a, a different family, a different person, and the way that you just sort of thought, like everything you thought was normal, you sort of got this other perspective that you're like, wait a minute, somebody's weird here. Uh, we're not all the same. We don't all think the same. We don't all do the things the same. And this caught me off guard. And maybe when that moment arose, you found yourself sort of tensing up or bracing yourself because what you were experiencing was so out of the ordinary for you. Um, we had a, I had a friend that was over at our house a little while back, and uh, he was sort of hanging out, and we were hanging out in our, our uh, living room, kitchen. We just, it's one giant room, really. And we have this wall that's like right by our dining room table, and it's like a photo wall, and it has these little ledges uh, on it, and there are photos sort of leaning on that wall. 
And as we're sort of sitting there hanging out, um, there was like a, a boom in the next room, which is my daughter Tegan's room. And one of the photos fell off the wall and just like boom and shattered. And it was really loud. And we all kind of jumped and we were like, <gasps> what? and it was directly like whatever happened in the room next door caused the photo to knock off the wall and shatter all over the place. And I was like, mm, man, that's, that was actually one of my favorite prints is a, a, a print that an artist friend of mine did and gave to me as a gift. And I was like, man. And um, I looked over at my friend. He was just kind of like, his eyes were big, like, what's going to happen now? And I don't know if you've been in a situation like this where you're in an environment you're not used to being in and something happens and you sort of brace yourself because you're like, this could go a lot of different ways. And I could see that in his eyes. And of course, my boys ran in the room because they heard the crash and they weren't in the room that caused it. And they ran and they were like, well, what's going on? What's going on? And of course, uh, you know, uh, they're ready to fight. You know what I mean? Like they've got uh, random things that they're going to use as weapons because uh, obviously first thing in their head is like someone broke into our house and we are going to be called upon. We've been dreaming about this forever. We're going to get a fight off bad guys. And um, my daughter did not come out of her room. And so I'm like, hey, get your sister. So they knocked her door. She comes out and she's like, what? What's going on? What, what happened? And I'm like, what? What is going on? Like, look, there's a photo that's like smashed all over the place. And she was like, oh, she's like, what? How did that happen? And I'm like, are you serious? What are you doing in there? I'm like, it, it literally sounded like, like you were wrestling somebody, like somebody snuck in your room and you were wrestling with them and you body slammed them against the wall and it knocked a photo off. And she was like, no, I just, there's a dresser and I, I couldn't get the door, to, the, the dresser to slam and so I slammed it real hard. And I'm like, that was it. That knocked it off the wall. And she was like, <gasps> she realized what, what picture it was. And she felt like nervous. And I'm just like, it's fine. It's fine. We'll clean it up, whatever. So we, Gretchen is like springing into action and she's like cleaning it all up and um, getting, getting the glass out of the way. And we're like vacuuming everything around there and cleaning it all up. And then we start joking around and we're like, what, what actually was, is that really what was happening in that room? And now we're all joking about like different scenarios that could have happened that would have knocked this picture off the wall. And we're teasing her and she's laughing and my boys are laughing. They go back to their room and Tegan goes back to her room and we're all sitting there and I look over at my buddy and he's like this. <laughs> Tensed up, like, like, I'm sure like when he like released the table, there were like, his handprint was in the table. He was like bracing himself. He was so tensed up and I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, that did not go how I thought it was gonna go. Like I thought when that thing fell and whatever happened in that room, I was just, I was expecting something else. I'm like, what were you expecting? It was like, I was expecting maybe kind of like what would have happened in my house if something broke. And I'm like, what would that be? And he's like, you know, like somebody would get up and be like, what's going on? And like yell and everybody would come out and then like we would all be like scrambling and then like we would have to clean it up. And then it was like, everyone, no one gets any privileges. You know what I mean? You're not eating for the next month. Like and these big consequences and... Oh, we'd all be scrambling and trying to make up excuses and, and we'd all feel uncomfortable. And, and I'm like, uh, and as he's describing it, he's tensing up even more. And I was just like, you're not there. It's okay. And he was like trying to loosen up and, and, uh, and he's just like, yeah, that was, I was just super different. It's just hard for me to wrap my head around that it's different, that it's different. And I'm like, it is, it's different here. 
And I bring this up because I, I think we all have these moments where we brace ourselves for what we think inevitably is going to happen, and then it doesn't. And we do this because we generally assume that other relationships operate according to the rules and roles of the family that we grew up in. And because we tend to do this naturally, you know, we, we assume like when, when someone says something along these lines, then everybody, we all sort of brace for this reaction because obviously that's what's coming next. And when, you know, something like this happens, obviously this is the thing you have to do to sort of restore peace uh, in those relationships. Um, clearly, like you would never bring up this subject because if you did, this would happen and there would be a price to pay for that. We all have these sort of instinctive rules that we follow that we don't even realize we follow. And not only that, um, you sort of figure out in the house that you grow up in what role everybody plays as well. And I don't know what those roles look like in the family that you grew up in. Maybe there was like, you know, the, the rigid opinionated one who sort of like came in and like all was, every time they walked in the room, they were annoyed about something. And then they barked out orders and then disappeared and everyone was just kind of like, oh, and then tried to figure out what they needed to do to make things better. Maybe there's the one uh, in your family who is always sort of scurrying about, you know, and they're always like doing all these things and trying to like, you know, make sure that they have everything done for everybody else so that they kind of keep the peace through their actions. Like maybe there's the person in your family who, no matter what happens, they're always trying to keep things light and they're making jokes and they're trying to distract people or disarm any imaginable tension that enters the room as soon as it enters the room. And I would, I would argue that most of us, we don't really talk about these things, right? We don't strategize them or script them. We just sort of slip into them. But I would say this, everyone who grew up in that house that you grew up in, they know the rules. They know the roles. They know how things are supposed to work. Even though you may have never talked about them out loud, you know them. It's just sort of how things worked. There's this uh, Old Testament wisdom writer who makes a really similar observation. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, it, this is written. It says this in the uh, NIV version. Start children off the way they should go, and even when they're old, they will not turn from it. In other words... Like our parents start us on a particular path, uh, like a path in which we sort of view the world, we view ourselves, we view relationships, we view family. And a lot of us, we stay on that path. It forms our relational expectations and interactions at work and at school with friends and on dates. Like this is just sort of the way things work. In other words, we tend to react in every relationship according to the realities of our early relationships, which isn't always helpful or healthy. And I say realities because like the way that you learn to react in the family you grew up in, um, it, it wasn't just like a made up thing. It wasn't just your perception of how things had to be. You did what you had to do to make it through. You learned the reactions and the responses that were required for you to actually survive that environment. The problem is like when we sort of absorb these things into the way that we do and view everything, um, the things that worked when we were younger as kids in that environment don't actually work all the time when we're older in other relationships. And you've probably uh, sort of made this observation before. 
Maybe, you know, um, in a relationship that you have, you know, someone sent a confusing text or they misread the schedule or they botched an expectation and this rift sort of opens up between the two of you and you can both feel it and suddenly everything is very tense in the space between you. And, and even people around you, like if they're in the same room, even if they don't know what's going on with you, they know something is going on with you and they can feel the tension between you two. And the two of you who are in sort of this rift, you respond. You do the thing that you have been conditioned to do. You use whatever tools that you've acquired over your life to try and resolve the situation or reestablish your own sense of relational safety. And some instincts work, at least in that moment with that person. But other instincts seem to make everything even worse. And now there's even more tension and more distance because the thing that you tried to do to make things better actually dug the hole deeper. But don't worry, because you can still use the same tools that made everything worse the first time, again, to make everything even worse the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time. And some of you are like, oh my gosh, this is why I got divorced. Yeah, it probably is. <laughs> this is sort of what we do. And this is where the problem arises. What you had to do to survive then is sabotaging what you want most now. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you had to do that then. That's the way that environment worked. That was real. But those same tools in this situation aren't helping or healing things. They're actually doing damage. They're, they're causing a lot of destruction. Now, this is something that, that psychologists and sociologists have been studying for a really long time. There's a whole field built around this idea. And I, this series really is about sort of bringing you into these ideas and then really shedding some light on the fact this isn't just sort of a psychological observation, that this has a lot of theological implications. And the, the field that we're referring to is attachment science, which is essentially the study of how we get and keep connection to others. And in attachment science, um, sort of the theory goes that um, we each have an attachment style, which is the set of assumptions that we've acquired about how relationships work. And there are four basic styles of attachment. And I want to just sort of give you an overview. And this is the part right now where as you're trying to capture this, you're going to be like, I feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose. I hope they talk about these more later. And we are. We're going to go into a lot of these in depth throughout the weeks. But just to give you sort of an overview or a big picture. Um, what's interesting about these four attachment styles is there's one sort of a secure attachment style and there's three insecure attachment styles. And some of you are like, that's interesting, right? Uh, one version of security and multiple forms of insecurity. And some of you are like, yeah, that tracks. That tracks for sure. So what is a secure attachment style? A secure attachment style is the belief that closeness is the result of being open, available, considerate, and responsive to one another, requiring you to clearly communicate your feelings and needs and enjoy each other just as you are right now. I read this to um, one of our friends that was over this past week and uh, described a secure attachment. And they were like, these are real people that exist? Like, this is a thing that happens? Or is this just like a made up, like, that would be not? And no, this is an actual category of people 
Um, but a lot of us probably relate more naturally to some of the insecure styles, right? Um, there is what's called a, a, what we're calling a sensitive attachment style. Sometimes it's referred to clinically as the anxious attachment style. And it's the belief that closeness is the result of right behavior, requiring you to vigilantly monitor others' moods for potential rifts you're responsible to prevent or repair. And so you, you got to do the right things and avoid the wrong things in order to stay close and connected to the people around you, which is why you got to be hypervigilant about everything. You're always checking and double-checking on the relationships. Is everything okay? It's like, you know, what, what does that mean? You seem frustrated. What did that text mean? What's going on? Are we cool? Are we, what? And you're always checking in because you've got to make sure that everything's going to be okay. And if there is something wrong, you feel anxious because it's probably your fault, which means you got to fix it. And that's why you got to figure out what's wrong, because if you don't know what's wrong, then you don't know what to do to fix it. And uh, it's definitely up to you. And so if you feel a lack of closeness, it's probably due to your own brokenness. There's shutdown attachment style, which is sometimes called clinically uh, the avoidant attachment style. And it's the belief that closeness is the result of remaining calm and in control, requiring you to suppress and avoid your feelings to keep yourself and others from getting hurt. It's this idea that like um, emotions uh, can feel dangerous and they're annoying <laughs> and they're out of control and you can't trust them. And so in order to stay close with people, you've got to push down any uh, emotions that they don't want to deal with, which is probably most of them, because you don't want them to see you as irrational, right? You don't want them to see you as crazy. And so you got to push that stuff down. And in fact, you, you don't really like that in other people. And we tend to, uh, those of us that share this attachment style, pull away and try and do all we can to sort of remain at an even keel level so that we can stay close to the people that we care about. Because everybody knows that emotions are all bad and they wreak a lot of havoc. Then there's those of us that have a, a shifty attachment style, um, sometimes known as disorganized. I like to call it scattered instead of shifty, and maybe that's just because I think I have some of these tendencies and that title makes me feel better about it. Um, but a, a shifty or a, a scattered attachment style is the belief that closeness is the result of you being a better person than you could ever be, requiring you to keep others from discovering and being disgusted by the real you. This one's tough because it's like a combination of the sensitive and the shutdown style blended together. So it's like the best of, uh, which is actually the worst of, both of the traits. Like, let's, let's, take, let's take the anxiety and the avoidance and like mix them together and like see what that bakes, right? And it becomes this sort of sense of like, I, I want to be close to people and I, I feel like I, I'm, I'm drawn to them and I, and I, and I need them, but also like I, I don't deserve to experience closeness and connection with people. And so like once I start to feel like they're too close, then I got to push them away and get out of the situation because obviously they're going to find out who I really am and then they're not going to want to be around me. They're not going to want to be close to me. But then of course, once you get by yourself, then you're just like, this is really lonely and you try and re-engage again and then that starts to feel dangerous. Then you got to push back and and the people around you are just like, what is happening right now? I don't understand what is going on. Now, I know obviously this, you're wanting to know more, and we're going to go into depth into each of these in the weeks to follow. Um, maybe some of you are wondering, like, um, is my attachment style just crazy? Because I feel like 
I see some of myself in a few of these things. And, and the reason for that is you're not crazy. Um, I don't know. You might be. I don't know you. But um, chances are, statistically, you're probably not crazy. But you may not fit exactly into one specific style. Um, all of us sort of exist on this spectrum of attachment styles. And um, this is a, sort of a graph to sort of give you a picture of what that can be. We're going to revisit this in the weeks to come to sort of talk about why these things exist and how they got to be the way they are and how we respond to these things. Um, there's this researcher that I was reading in preparation for this series who's talking about this thing where we sometimes look at this and we're like, yeah, maybe I sometimes have this, but I sometimes have that. And part of the reason for that is that he says categories are for research, not for real people, which I thought was hilarious and also made me feel great, right? And sort of the idea behind this is like, you're, you're, it's not about you fitting squarely within one of these boxes, um, but like doing research and sort of categorizing things is helpful. Why would we do it at all? And I think the reason is because if you can identify what form of insecurity is keeping you from the closeness you crave, then you know what tools you need to acquire and access and leverage in order to move yourself towards a place of being more secure, which is, which is what God wants for us. The, the Apostle Paul said it this way, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He said, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And I, I, the, the thing that I think is interesting about this verse is this word, like, don't copy or don't conform, I think is an interesting phrasing because here's the thing. You've already done it. Like, you've already conformed. We all naturally copy and conform. Like, we're being told to, like, stop doing the thing that we naturally do. You've already absorbed a lot of relational rules and roles from the world around you your family, your culture, all this sort of stuff that you've experienced up to this point. Now, those things, some of them may be great, some of them may not be, but the, the, the actual benchmark for what is healthy is what God says about us, how God created us to be, and how Jesus interacts with us. In fact, God wants to take us from where we are and grow us to a place of health. This is his heart for us. He wants to transform the way we think and react to our relationships. And maybe you're wondering like, okay, how do you actually become secure? Because maybe at this point, you're not just paranoid about your dysfunction, but you're like, I'm screwing up my kids. I, wow, I've ruined it for them. How, how, how would a parent actually raise kids with secure attachments? And, and I'm just gonna give you the answer to this week one to sort of calm you as parents. Research suggests it's really these three things. To raise kids with secure attachments, uh, you would need to show them that closeness with you is not dependent on what they do. That I love you for who you are, and the, like you can do wrong things, bad things, and that doesn't change the way I feel about you or your position in, my, in our family. The second thing is to teach them to identify, experience, and express the full range of their emotions in a healthy way. Uh, a lot of us, maybe we grew up with the opposite of this, where it was just like our feelings made everybody else in the family uncomfortable, so we had to like censor them or push them down, or we learned to deal with them through like things that 
sort of turned us into addicts with certain things to make us feel better. And parents who teach their kids to be secure, like help them to name their emotions and what to do and how to respond to those things and that all of them have a place somewhere. And the third thing is to make it clear that you genuinely like and love them the way they are, quirks and all. In other words, like, um, not that like, man, you're okay, but you would really be great, and I would really like you if you were more like this. But actually, the weird kind of quirks about you, the stuff that like sometimes even is annoying to me, it's what makes you uniquely you, and I, I even like that stuff too. I, I don't just love you because I'm obligated because, you know, we made you and we have to, but we more than love you. We like you. You bring us joy and delight. We just like being around you. We like listening to your stories. We like just like seeing how you navigate the world. You are interesting to us as parents. Now, when you look at this, maybe just like me and my wife, when we were looking at these things, you start to get panicked. You're like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing all of those. I mean, I'm trying to, maybe I'm not doing them enough. And research also shows this, and this is going to make you feel so much better. For a parent to develop a secure attach, attachment in their kids and with their kids, they only have to get it right. This is research talking 50% of the time, which is like a double-edged sword, that information, right? Because some of you are like 50%, I can do 50%. Yeah, 50%. Yeah, I think we might even be doing 50, 52% right now. <laughs> we are crushing it as parents. We're doing so good. And then there's another part of you that was like, seriously, mom and dad, you couldn't do 50%? That's why I'm like this? You couldn't get up to 50%. In most classes, that's an F. You couldn't even get an F. You got a zero? Seriously? Were you even trying? It makes us feel torn knowing this. But what research also shows is that, you know, parents that work to understand their own attachment styles, they are significantly more likely to be able to respond healthily to their children. And so all this to say, one of the best things you could do for your family, for your marriage, for your dating life, for your workplace, for your kids, is to actually commit to being here and understanding this in the context of your life during the course of this series. But here's the thing. Your attachment style doesn't just affect how you relate to those you work with and you live with and you're raising. It determines how you read your relationship with God as well. In other words, how we attach to others is how we attach to God. Now, we can intuit this, right, from the things I was saying before, right? Like that we, we tend to think that all relationships operate according to the family, the rules and roles that we grew up in. And we, we, we could intuit that maybe we would sort of project that not only on the people around us, but on God himself. But we don't even have to intuit because scripture makes it obvious by using a lot of family of origin metaphors to describe our relationship with God. Here's just one of them. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, See how very much God our Father loves us, he calls us his children, and that's what we are. And for a lot of us, we hear that, and these metaphors for God, right? Father, children, family, these are not neutral phrases. They're loaded. They come pre-equipped with certain rules. These roles have depth and meaning to them that we now assign to God. 
And because we didn't all grow up with the same kind of parents, we don't all see, relate, and respond to God in the same way. And a lot of that has to do with the attachment style that we've acquired. I would say that the, the sensitive among us vigilantly find ourselves monitoring God and his moods and how he makes us feel and whether or not we feel him. Um, and if there's any rifts there, then we've got to be responsible to repair our own broken relationship with God, believing that if we don't eliminate all of our sin and we don't do all the right things and we don't have all the right beliefs, then God won't want to have anything to do with us. And so we feel panicked and anxious inside of our relationship with God because he is looking for a reason to reject you. Those of us who are shut down, we work to suppress any feelings of pain or fear or sadness or doubt because obviously these things are evidence that we don't have enough faith. And obviously, God needs us to have faith, and faith requires us to squelch all of our feelings because, you know, having these feelings would cause God to reprimand or reject us for being so incredibly weak and not trusting him enough. And those of us with a shifty or scattered attachment style we repetitively punish ourselves to show God that we're just as disgusted with ourselves as he is with us. Like we get, we get it, God. We know that we will never be good enough for you. And we have this understanding of our relationship with God, our father, as like, you know, a, a part of being close is constantly feeling terrible. So that's how we feel close to God. When we feel like we are absolute garbage, Man, I must be in the will of God. Maybe you're wondering, okay, so does anyone have like a real secure relationship with God? I mean, is that even possible? And I, I think it is. In fact, I want to read you something today, a story that Jesus told. And I, I think it is, is probably the best story about um, defining what, Jesus means, what God means throughout scripture when he talks about himself as a father and us as his children. I think this is the ultimate example of a secure parent trying to provide secure attachments to their kids. And I want you just to listen to and absorb this. And I want you, as you're listening to this story, to pay attention to how it makes you feel and how realistic it seems to you as I'm reading it. This is found in Luke chapter 15, Verse 11, this is Jesus talking. I'll read through the, from the message. It says this, Jesus said there was once a man who had two sons. And the younger said to his father, I want right now what's coming to me. And so the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There he wasted everything he had. After he'd gone through all of his money, there was a bad famine all throughout that country and he began to feel it. He signed on as a citizen with the citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. And he was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. And that brought him to his senses. And he said, the farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day and I'm starving to death. I'm going back. I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't even deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And he got up. And he went home to his father. And when he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
his heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech, Father, I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you, I don't deserve to be called your son. But the father interrupted, calling his servants, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him, put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, then get a prize-winning hog and cook it. We're gonna feast, we're gonna party. My son is here. The one I feared was dead is alive. The lost found. And so they ate and laughed and enjoyed each other's company. Now, here's what I would guess about you. That when we hear this story, there are a couple different reactions that happen at the same time. One is, what a beautiful, incredible story. And there's another part of us that thinks, but how totally unrealistic. What a bizarre fairy tale. That's not how real people work. That's not how fathers are. That's not how relationships function. And it certainly can't be who God is. I think when we, we hear this, what we feel is that there are parts of it that are unrealistic. But here's the crazy part. Not all of us in here think the same parts of this story are unrealistic. I think the parts we find most unrealistic are connected to our attachment style, to the way we think relationships work. I think the sensitive among us hear this story and think like no father would ever let their son back into their inner circle without first proving himself. That's unrealistic. I mean, this kid has failed him once before and talk is cheap, so there's no way that they would actually be okay until he works off what he did and pays back what he took. The shutdown among us hear this story and we think like no father would ever respect a son who crawled back all weak and whiny. Like he might help him, but he would never respect him ever again. He'd never forgive his son for pulling him away multiple times from important work to deal with his son's ridiculous drama. I think the shifty among us hear this story and we think like, I mean, the father might reluctantly let him come home, but their relationship would never recover. Because now, now his dad knows how depraved and disgusting he really is. And maybe if he grovels enough, his father would help him, maybe hiring him on out of pity or obligation, but he'd always hold his son at an arm's length. Like even when they were around each other, he'd be eyeing and judging him, always annoyed with his presence and never admitting it. Some of you, you, you feel these things so deeply because in your mind, that's how it works. But I need you to know that that is your insecurity talking, not the truth. Because God is a healthy parent who wants to show you and help you experience secure attachments with him and others. The Apostle Paul says it this way, Romans chapter 8, verse 38. This is a true picture of who God really is. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And here's my question for you. This is the whole reason we want to do this series. What if you really believed this at the core of your being? How would that change everything about you? Everything the way, about the way you saw God, about the way you saw yourself, about the way you interacted with other people? And yet, so many of us have a hard time believing that that story in this verse could be remotely true because it's something outside of our experiences. Jesus was on earth teaching. He was asked about what the meaning of life is. Like, what, what should we, what are we here to do? What, what is it that we should all devote ourselves to? And he famously says, this is a, in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, that we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbor as yourself. And I bring this up because I think that we tend to love God and others the same way according to the same rules. I would say that like in the area that you have a hard time trying to love or attach to or view or connect with God is probably the same thing that you struggle to do in your human relationships and vice versa. I think for a lot of us, like we, we're fine loving God with our heart, but we're not sure that we can trust him with our soul. Others of us, I think like, you know, I can love you, God, with my strength and with my mind, but I'm, I'm not sure that I can trust you with my heart. That feels dangerous. We do this because it's imprinted on us that if we expose God to all of us, not just the ones that have proven safe so far, that would be the most dangerous thing we could ever do. But if you're only able to partially attach to God and others, you aren't really living a life to the full. And that's why we want to help you during this series to acquire the right tools for you, for your style, to tunnel toward more secure attachments, to know what to do to partner with God, to renew your mind and relate to him and others from a healthy place. Because it is possible. I want you for a moment just to imagine that you could step into relationships with God and other people that are completely secure. For some of you, it feels like a fantasy. For some of you, that sounds so far-fetched, it might as well be a miracle. And I think God being able to renew our minds and bring us from an insecure to a secure place is probably the greatest miracle God ever does in any of us. I think it's one he's offering to all of us as we enter into this new year. So here is your homework this week. This series is gonna have a little bit of homework. And this is the homework for this week. It's just a real simple thing to take our, uh, our spiritual attachment style assessment so that you can become more aware of your default relational starting point. I would encourage you to take this, for your family to take this. Now you can scan this link and it'll take you right directly to an online version that will, you'll just answer the questions, it'll tally it 
You can do it as many times with the, the family and friends around you, and it will spit out a response. We also, for those of you that are just like, I'm not like a techie sort of a person. I don't trust robots to tell me what my attachment style is. Um, we, we actually have a hard copy of this, and um, it's based on a, a lot of research uh, that we put into the series. And um, you can grab this at, on your way out today. And uh, I want to encourage you, maybe take this, take a few of them. And I want to encourage you to come back next week as we begin to dive into what it means to sort of tunnel from insecurity to security. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about what it means to move from sensitive to confident. The week after, we're going to talk about what it means to move from shut down to connected. And the, the last week, from shifty or scattered to comfortable. And I think the things that we're going to hand to you um, from psychology and theology are genuinely going to help you in your relationship with God and in your relationships with other people. God did not make you to go through life being guided by your insecurity. He made you to find security in him and to grow in that security and become a wellspring of security for the people in your orbit. And that's what I want to pray into your life today, that as we start this journey together, that that is what you would find yourself moving toward step by step by step. Would you bow your heads with me across this place as we pray? Father, thank you so much for the way in which you love us, the way in which you see us, the way in which you help us define reality. God, your word says that we don't even know what real love is except that you first loved us. And a lot of us, we define love, we define closeness according to dysfunctional rules and roles that we grew up experiencing as normal. And you want to show us what actual love is by introducing us and drawing us close to yourself through your son, Jesus. God, I pray that as we tiptoe through this series, that we would get a clear picture of who you are, who you made us to be, and how you want to partner with us to move from insecurity to security with you and with those around us. God, because we lean into you and your word and your will and your way, God, may we bring so much more health to every relationship we occupy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at southhillscorona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.